Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. It is an honor to get to introduce many of you. To, I'm sure most of you know who he is, but as a fellow author, I have always respected this man's work. He has given his life to discipleship through writing, and so he has brought to life Jesus and fear and so many different topics that we can't discuss them all today. He's sold over 17 million books. That is just incredible in 50 languages worldwide. Philip Yancey, thank you so much for being here today. I've been looking forward to this, Jenny. Well, I can't wait to just hear a little, just dork out just with me for a minute as an author. I would love to hear how you chose to go into that. How did you know that you had that gift? Well, I didn't really. <laughs> I just needed a job. I wanted to play second base for the New York Yankees, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't very good. So that didn't work out. And I was in graduate school at Wheaton College. And a lot of Christian organizations were located in Wheaton back then. Many of them have moved to Colorado, where I live now. But uh, I finally got a job at a magazine called Campus Life. And I had always been on the school newspaper, yearbook, that kind of thing, but never thought, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. And I, I truly learned it on the job. I had a very wise editor, mentor, who uh, he, he had a little habit. He would uh, read my article in draft form, and they look at me and say, well, Philip, it's about 80% of the way there. <laughs> what he meant was tear it up and start all over again. Right. <laughs> but he was gentle and patient, and, and you can learn how to write. And I learned a lot from that man, Harold Myra, and then numerous other people over the years. And I want to talk, you You just come out with a memoir about your life, and I know that was that's always a brave endeavor to tell the story of your life. But one of the things that I found fascinating in it was just you came to know Jesus and yet your brother never did. I'd love to just hear about your journey with Jesus and why you loved him so much. Yeah. We grew up about as church saturated as you could get. It was a small little fundamentalist, not a healthy church, maybe a hundred, hundred people in the church. And we actually lived on the church property. We lived in a trailer home. I was raised in poverty. My father died when I was just a year old. My brother was three years old. And he died because people had a wrong belief about what God was going to do. They were planning to be missionaries, my mother and father. And then he got polio. That was the big pandemic back then that everyone was afraid of. He spent two months in an iron lung at a charity hospital in Atlanta. It was the only hospital that had an iron lung. And those are miserable months. He was completely paralyzed, could barely move his head a little bit. The rest of the time, his entire body was in this steel tube that he did the breathing for him. And a group of Christians, including my mother, his wife, believed that he would be healed by God. 
So against all medical advice, they removed him from the iron lung and moved him to another clinic. And he showed a little bit of improvement for a few days, but within a couple of weeks died. And that kind of determined our life. My mother was not equipped. She really didn't have a, a career. She had never driven a car. She'd never written a check. Mm. And here she is left with these two boys. Mm. And this little church, for all of its flaws, became uh, a community for her who supported her and, and gave her a place to live uh, a lot on the property. And so we had to go to church every time the doors were open, several times on Sunday, of course, Sunday evening, Wednesday, youth night, revivals, whatever was happening back in those days. For childhood, you know, we we went along with the program, but as we became teenagers, we started questioning certain parts of it, including racism, because it was a racist church. It was mm. taught right from the pulpit. And I had some revelations where I found out that some of the things they were teaching me about people of the color were were wrong, just flat mm. out wrong. It started to rattle my faith. And I thought, boy, if you can't trust them about that, can you trust them about the Bible? Can you trust them mm. about Jesus? And my brother and I went different directions. He went all the way. He, he decided to get as far away from the church and God as possible. So he dropped out of school, became one of Atlanta's original hippies, took some quite a bit of LSD, eventually ended up in California, where there were a lot of other hippies in those days. And uh, really went through the rest of his life trying to break every rule in the book. He succeeded in doing that, but to his own destruction in, in a lot of ways. He was addicted to a lot of different substances and to, to sex and just has had a pretty tough go of it, trying to get away from God in, in a lot of ways. And I was on that route, but then... Uh, through a remarkable series of circumstances, God kind of reached out, and I thought God was going to crush me, but he didn't. God seduced me, I, I guess I would say. God God showed me the good parts of life and set me up for a conversion experience that uh, I wasn't expecting and wasn't even seeking. I, I mean, all of your writing is very in touch with just the struggles that we face. And I think that's why it's connected with so many different people. Is this from your story? Like, did, did this passion for God coming into the hard parts of life, like where, where did that come from for you? It, it really does come from my story. And I, I wrote this memoir, I'm 73 now, so I've, I've written 25 other books. But if you go back and look at them, they start out in the margins of faith. And, and that's where I was just kind of gingerly walking around do i do i want to uh, do i want to go in fully or not because i had been burned by the church like a lot of people do get burned and you know nowadays you hear the, these words uh deconstructing your faith and reconstructing your faith and i guess i was doing that without without knowing it I, the, the words weren't being used back then i was trying to sort out the messages that i got and i was trying to be honest about my experiences so my First real book was a book called Where is God When It Hurts? That's a question we all have at times. Uh, what about all the suffering in the world? Why, why doesn't God intervene more? Why didn't God heal my father who wanted to be a missionary? And then the second book was a book called Disappointment with God. So that's where I was. I was out there in the, in the margins. And it was only years later that I started writing books like The Jesus I Never Knew, What's Amazing About Grace, and Prayer Doesn't Make Any Difference. 
And you'll notice a lot of those books have questions in them. And that's that's where I was. And I frankly, I, f- I feel really blessed, Jenny, that I've been able to make a living kind of t- looking at my faith, going to the Bible and taking my questions to people who mm-hmm. can help me and to to the Bible itself. And along the way, when I look back on it, you know, in, in some ways, I, I tell people I I started out with the worst that the church has to offer. And I do tell some of those stories in the book. But I but I think God at one point looked at looked at me and said, uh, let me show you the best. Let me show you what I had in mind with the human race. So for about 10 years, I was working with this uh veritable saint of a man, Dr. Paul Brand. We worked on books like Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image. And he was uh, a surgeon, brilliant man. He'd been offered posts of head of surgery at Oxford and at Stanford. And he turned them all down to work with leprosy patients in India, some of the lowest people you'll ever find, many of them in those days called untouchables, now called Dalits. And I just followed him around. I I wasn't ready to write about my own faith. It was still taking shape. But I could write with confidence about him. And truthfully, it only takes one person who really does Mm. show us what God had in mind, Mm. what what a Jesus follower looks like. And I was able to observe that up close because I'm interviewing him, following him around to India, to England, where he studied. And uh, in the process... I gave words to his faith. He gave faith to my words. And then I I was finally able after that 10-year period, which I see as a kind of cocoon period, to start writing about my own faith and taking those questions and and reviewing them in terms of what I had been taught as a as a child, but then figuring out which ones of these things are worth keeping. What where where is the pearl of great price that I can hang on to and dust off the other parts that don't belong? I think people will will relate to this quote out of your new book, and the new book is called Where the Light Fell. I sincerely want to follow Jesus' steps, but then I tell a lie or do something stupid the next day. I feel attracted to holiness and repelled at the same time, like two magnets brought together. And I just think that is, oh, that's so real. It's just, I know we're supposed to want holiness, but... I wrote a book about grace, and and that changed me because I realized that uh, grace is bigger than our flaws grace is bigger god's love is stronger than the things that the stupid things that we do the things we know are wrong and go ahead and do anyway there is a solution for that and we've we've had that solution and it's it's a matter of depending on jesus and and looking at ourselves asking god to show us how god looks at us because i believe that god looks at us through the lens of jesus and sees not the ornery people we are, but but perfected people as we will be one day. You wrote the book, The Jesus I Never Knew. What did that entail for you? What what, what was that journey for you to to land with a different view of of who he was? Yeah, I came out of childhood with this uh, old kind of Mister Rogers or Captain Kangaroo <laughs> view of Jesus. You know, gathering the little children around him, and and certainly there was that part of him because he was. He loved children, and he said, don't keep these children away. Let them come to me. But there was another side of Jesus. Jesus was tough. People kept trying to trap him, and every time they tried to trap him, he would turn the trap right back on them. And and I was taken aback by just how sharp and how confident and how brilliant Jesus was. You know, he told, he 
we have a, a record of something like 27 parables, I think it is. And as a writer, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've tried writing parables. And it's very hard. It's hard to write one parable. <laughs> and Jesus would come up with these stories, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, just in answer to somebody's question, evidently without any planning. You know, he's, he, he just spins a parable, that it, a story that is so strong that 2,000 years later, we're still, still yeah. studying it, trying to figure it out and understand it. And I, I like that part. You you never could quite, you couldn't pin Jesus down. You never knew exactly what he was going to say. And he was so unpredictable because you would expect him to hang around uh, the scholars and the VIPs and all that, not Jesus. You know, these were the ones trying to trap him. He would go to the people with leprosy, to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, mm, to the sinners yes. and get criticized for that. And And when you think about it, most people who have it all together, they're not the kind of people that a, a really poor, needy, homeless person would would want to go to. You know, they they would feel uncomfortable around that kind of person, especially a a holy man, you know, a righteous person. But Jesus somehow had the welcome sign open, and uh, the least likely people that you can imagine would flock to him. And he made them the the story, the heroes of his of his stories. It's not the story of the obedient older brother. It's the story of the prodigal younger brother. It's not the story of the uh, the good priest. It's the story of the good Samaritan, the heretic. And and you just couldn't put Jesus in a box. And I just didn't come away from childhood with that appreciation for mm. the upside down <laughs> approach that Jesus had to our, what we would expect him. I, we, this is a season where we're taking people's questions. And so I, they, there's some hard ones, and I'd love to run some of them by you. Let's talk about the church hurt. I mean, you're a perfect one to answer this. So many people are walking away from the church right now. And how do we heal from church hurt and still engage and, and value the church? Those are the very people I wrote this book for. And um, I talk about being in an airplane sometimes seated next to somebody and, and they'll ask me, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a Christian author. A lot of the times that ends the conversation, they don't want to know anymore, but sometimes they'll go further and say, Oh yeah, I used to be, I used to be into that religion stuff. Uh, you know, went to a young life camp one summer and was involved in a church for a while, but boy, that's a long time ago. I haven't done that for a while. And I'll say, why not? And they'll say, well, it was the way, our family got treated, and they'll tell me a story about uh, a gay brother or, or sister or uh, a divorced mother who was mistreated by the church. They'll look at me and I'll say, boy, it's actually a lot worse than that. Let me tell you my story of the church. <laughs> and they'll say, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian author. And I'll say, well, I, I am. And that's, that's a story in itself, how that happened. But it would be a bad trade to trade away a chance to connect with the God of the universe, the God who created mm. this earth, because of the way some crank treated your family 20 years ago. You know, that's not a very good trade. And I, the, the wounds are real. The church is made up of flawed people just like us. There is no perfect church. You go back and read yeah. Paul's epistles, you know, Galatians and Corinthians, and you can see the early church is just as bad as we are, you know? yeah. and they have just as just as many problems as we do today, and and yet uh, that's in a sense that's God's great gamble, 
it was one thing for God to come as a human being and be and live among us, live on earth and, and be subject to the kinds of things that we are on this earth. It's another thing to turn to, to us, not the sons of God, but ordinary human being and say, okay, it, it's your job now. Take the message of God's love, of God's forgiveness, of God's transforming power, and take that gospel out to people around you. And we don't always do it well in the church. So what do we do about that? Well, I say, don't just trade it away. You know, when I look back, even on the church that I describe in the book, Where the Light Fell, with all of its flaws, it, it also had a lot of pluses. Even though it concentrated on judgment and condemnation and sermons about hell, when your house burned down, when your husband came home drunk, uh, where do you turn? You you turn to the community of the church, and and my in my own family's case, you know, they gave us a place to live, and even though we absorbed a lot of bad stuff from the church, they were God's place for us for that period of time. So, to people who are ready to give up, I say it's exactly people like you that the church needs. You see the flaws in the church. Why don't you become a missionary back into the church? and address some of those flaws. Why don't you show them what a gracious and a loving person is? They, you're right. They're not showing that to you right now. But you can turn the table as, as Jesus told us to do. And when, when they expect rejection, instead, give them grace, give them acceptance. That's what we're called to do. We're, trying to, we're, we're called to show what God is like in the most unexpected ways. Mm. And Jesus said, love your enemies. People say, what? What a crazy idea. Why would you love your enemy? And she just said, well, the reason is that's the only way people are going to know what God is like, mm -hmm. because God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on good people and bad people alike, even the people who are offensive to you. And if you show them that kind of unexpected grace, then you're showing them what God is like. And that's what we're here to do. Your brother, you mentioned, did you all have a good relationship? Because a lot of people have the question of just how do I keep a relationship with a really difficult family member. Yeah. Well, when we were kids, we fought like any two brothers. He was two years older, so he usually won. <laughs> In teenage years, when family dysfunction surfaced, and a lot of families can tell stories about that, we had different approaches. My brother, being the oldest, would, would take my mother on, our mother, and he would usually lose. She's the adult. He's the kid. So he would lose. And I would see that. And I would see how disruptive that was and, and these yelling matches and and just the enmity between the two of them. And I didn't want any part of that. So I took another approach. I kind of hunkered down into a little shell to, to, to keep pain away, you know, to try to keep it anybody from affecting me. And that wasn't a healthy response either. And then later, uh, my brother and I became very close because when he when he went through his hippie phase and 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 started doing some self-destructive stuff, he was rejected by the family, had no contact with our mother for more than 50 years. Wow. And and they still haven't seen each other in 52 years. And I was his one link to his past. So he went all the way to California. We were from Atlanta. He had no contact with with any of those Atlanta relatives, and I became that link. And and 
to this day, uh, I'm kind of his older brother, his guardian. He had a stroke, so he's disabled. And I've had I've learned a lot about disability through him. He claims to be an atheist to this day. I'm not sure that's true. I would use the word agnostic. But uh, all the people who help him out have one thing in common. They're followers of Jesus. They're my friends. I'll say, could you look after my brother? I can't be there 24-7. And they do respond. So uh, he experiences the good side of the church. He just doesn't recognize it as the church. You know, when I think about this, the way even you're answering my questions right now, um, one of the questions that was brought to us was just, how do I respond to family members or friendships when I just want to fix them? Mm. And it just doesn't ever work, unfortunately. So what what do you say to that? Like, how do you, how do you approach conversations with people where you know they're going down a wrong road, but you know that that's not enough of an answer? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think one reason God came up with the idea of the family and what what it is to be a parent is to give us some kind of understanding of what it's like to be God. <laughs> because, I mean, I mean, God sees the choices we make, and some of them are terrible choices, and some of them are self-destructive. They end up hurting us. And as any parent knows, you, you see your children doing the same thing, and you realize you're you're powerless to stop that. If you if they're free people, you can't just twist their brains and and make them make those right choices. Mm-hmm. And so you can either choose to love them regardless of the choice they made and pray for them and do everything you can, or to become this kind of tyrant, forcing them to do your will. But that'll always come out against you in the end. Mm-hmm. And it you know it's not just over holy things. Uh, there are parents who disown their children because they became an artist or a writer instead of a doctor or a lawyer. We have such little power over human beings. And anything that you can for you can force a lot of things. You can force behavior in a child. You know, I'm going to spank you if you don't stop doing that. But you can't force love. You can't say, I'm going to make you love me. It just doesn't work that way. And that's what God wants from us. And and God knows that, which is why God doesn't crush us. God, in my in my case, I use the word seduce, seduces me so that I understand God is a God of love and what he wants in return is, is my love. And that whole thing of not being able to fix, I've written a lot about pain and suffering, and that comes true dealing with people who are suffering. For example, the book of Job is the great book on pain and suffering in the Bible. And we talk about Job's friends in quote marks because they they weren't very friendly. <laughs> they they sat down and told Job everything he was doing wrong, even though they were wrong. But if you go back and read it carefully, they really were his friends. They came and sat and, and they tore their clothes and put some ash on their head and were silent for seven days and yeah. seven nights. Very yeah. good friends. Yeah. Very, very good friends. It's when they opened their mouths that the problem started. Wow. <laughs> they were trying to fix Job. And they were absolutely wrong. Wow. And, and then at the end of the book, there's this great twist where God says, as for your friends here, you know, these supposed theologians who have all the answers, I won't even listen to their prayers unless they pray through you, Job, my servant, Job. And they, they were the holier, you know, the righteous people who had all the answers. And boy, we could learn a lesson from that, can't we? Because uh, oh, 
Good. It's so easy to show up and say, well, here's here's the problem and here's what you need to do and here's why God is doing that to you. And uh, that doesn't usually help. Certainly didn't help in Job's case. And in that case, they were completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because I do feel discouraged right now just at how it feels like the church is about trying to fix every problem rather than love each other and take care of each other. Talk about the future of the church and what what you see as someone who has lived longer than many of us that are listening. What What is your hope? What do you pray changes or happens? I have hope in in the next generations, X, Y, Z, whatever you call them, however you divide them, because uh, energy comes from youth. And and when I look back on on my lifetime, I look at the the great movements of God. None of them were predicted. In fact, Jesus told us that revival, the spirit of God, is it's going to be like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. You can't corral it. You know, you can't stop it. And, and there's this film going around right now, the Jesus Revolution, the story of the Jesus movement out in California. And if you if you picked the least likely group in the United States to start a revival, you would pick those dirty, drug-addled hippies out in California. And that's what that's what the Spirit of God <laughs> did and started this movement. Uh, go back even before that, the, the Pentecostal movement, the Azusa Street Revival, you know, uh, a racially mixed, poor congregation. And suddenly it, fire just took hold of the thing. And again and again, uh, then the mega churches, where do they come from? The the Willow Creek Association movement, all these different movements in my lifetime just came out of nowhere, the least likely places. And I I do have hope and faith in the next generation. They've got the energy, they've got the enthusiasm. And one thing about kids, you've got to be authentic. They don't swallow the program. It's got to be true. It's got to be realistic. It's got to be addressing the real needs that they have. And that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for people my age, for the older generations, but it's it's necessary. And, you know, just recently we had the, the revival at uh, Asbury College, uh, which was duplicated in a lot of other Christian universities as well. So you, you can't fence the spirit of God in. And mm. and there, unfortunately, the news media, when, when you say the word evangelical, for example, they hear that through a political lens. That's that's all they know. So they just talk about who evangelicals vote for. But we all know that wherever you go in this country, you show up at churches and there will be people visiting prisoners and adopting foster children and supporting missionaries and uh, giving to organizations that are involved in in rescuing people from human trafficking. You know, the, the church is there. It's doing it. And, and different parts of that attract different people at this time. Like right now, racism and sexual trafficking, those are huge issues for young people. And I think those are both important issues. I think it's great that they're grabbing hold of those. And, uh, you know, I like to just kind of sit back and watch what's next. We mm-hmm. can't predict it, but it's fun to watch. enjoyed today's conversation with Jenny and Philip Yancey, I will make sure to link in the show notes. Philip's latest memoir is called Where the Light Fell, and it is really powerful and impactful. And so you can find that anywhere across any retailer. And Philip has been writing books for 
many, many years, and some of his books are true Christian classics. So we will link his website in the show notes as well, so you can hear more from him. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Made for This podcast. Thank you.